0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, one and all, to this installment of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, excited to go into the bong hive, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron.
1: Hello. Unfortunately, I do not know how to say hello in South Korean, so we're going to just go with hello.
0: Well, it would be like, hello in South Korean. That's how you'd say it. I don't think that's South- how you'd say it. No? <laughs> I you don't would? think okay, so. Never, nope. never mind. Nope. Okay. We'll move on then. <laughs> for our, <laughs> For our donor pick this month, our faithful patrons chose by the narrowest of votes, the international hit Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho of Snowpiercer fame. There's a reason why it became a fan favorite, well, several actually, and we'll get into that. So consider this your official spoiler alert as we go into our one-word takeaways. Aaron, would you like to start us off this evening?
1: Yeah, well, man, everything about this movie is manipulative. That's my word. And I don't mean just the characters, um, but I mean the tricks that the filmmaker pulls as well. It is so much fun watching them for the first half of the film. From the very opening scenes, they are schemers and scam artists and very talented ones, obviously. And it's such a blast to watch them manipulate the parks and infiltrate their house. And they do this all the way to this better situation. And it's, it is honestly some of the most thrilling and entertaining cinema that I've ever watched that specifically the first half of this film when they're doing that. And then we get to learn about everybody else who's manipulating people, the housekeeper. We find out she's been manipulating the parks as well. And then ultimately the filmmaker himself, Bong Joon Ho, who is pulling the strings. I feel like. He's playing with us and manipulating where our allegiances fall at certain periods during the film, as we move through this journey with the Kims, but it's all done in such a satisfying way that allows us to eventually reflect back. Like we're about to do right now on why we root for who and when and why, <laughs> but It is like he is setting us up to completely floor us later in a way that leaves us thinking about it long after it ended. Is it criticizing the rich, the poor, the system? Is it pointing a finger at us, the viewer, for joyfully enjoying watching the schemes and the carnage? I really don't know for sure, but I love trying to grapple with it.
0: Yeah, and a movie like this really does do more than just invite you to grapple with it. It actually forces you by the hand. It says you're going to deal with this in one way, shape or form as an audience. And it's a lot of fun. It's one of those movies where you feel great in the moment. And then afterwards you're thinking, wait, should I have laughed at that? Should I have felt that way? And I definitely thought manipulative when I was watching this. I remember watching it late last year, and making that that comment. I was like, "Oh my gosh, these people are so bad." And when I was referring to these people, I referred to the Kims. And it didn't dawn on me until while I was watching the rest of the movie. I was like, "Oh my gosh, everybody's just doing this." And then, "Oh, it's, you know, it's it's Bong Joon-ho. He's doing it all to us." But I think the manipulation specifically for the Kims comes from this sense of being entitled. And I think that's the word that really sums up my movie experience, because just like you, what I thought was on the surface, entitlement being expressed by one family, the parks really came to fruition as that manipulation by the Kim started taking shape because I started seeing more of that in a sense of entitlement, that feeling of deserving something. And both of those ideas, manipulation and entitlement really thread the needle in terms of themes and ideas that I think Bong Joon-ho latches onto for a lot of the film. And so I wanted to unpack both of those ideas for the next few minutes, because I think it's Parasite's one of those movies that I guess I personally get nervous talking about, because I feel like I'm going to miss something like this could easily turn into a two, two and a half, three hour conversation. And in all honesty, Aaron, this is probably a coffee conversation where we're spitballing and we're like, Hey, did you see this? And you see that. I mean, we can be very candid about the fact that we have notes that we refer to because we have to keep this succinct. So it's not like our comments are going to be like telegraphed, but I fully admit two things. One that we're probably going to miss something or several things because this movie is very in depth when it comes to its ideas and explorations. It's layers upon
1: layers upon layers.
0: It absolutely is. So consider this a highlight reel if you will secondly i am not going to attempt to try to call the characters by name (laughs) i don't want to offend and clearly i will get very confused so you will hear me and maybe aaron i don't know if you can attest to this you'll hear me say the kim's husband or mr kim mrs kim the kim's daughter the kim's son and same thing with the parks because it's just makes it easier for me to talk about and i feel like it's less confusing for anybody listening
1: it's way less confusing for someone listening if you're listening to this episode and you haven't seen the movie in several weeks or a month or whatever the case may be and we spout off a south korean name or two back to back that may sound very similar to each other phonetically you're not going to know the difference of who that is character wise so we're going to make it easier on you and just by default, I guess it'll be easier on us.
0: Touche. <laughs> Touche.
1: spun that. I'm manipulated. I like it. That's Dude, me
0: manipulating were... the audience. This is why you're the marketing guy. <laughs> okay, it's really good. He, he knows how to he knows how to roll with it like that. Well, starting off, I wanted to unpack that idea of being entitled, and as I mentioned, I was surprised at how layered that idea was, and how Bong Ho puts that on. Both of these families, you kind of expect it from the parks because they're this clean, rich, very secluded, away from all the dirty, rich family who is who are very naive. At least the wife is uh, Mrs. Park is. But as we unpack this narrative, we start seeing some of the. Entitlement, or at least the spirit of entitlement that lives in the parks. Um, It manifests itself differently with each one of the, the park characters, which I really find fascinating and entertaining that they're not all expressing it in the same way. They kind of deal with it in their own way. But when you look at both of these families, how does that idea of deserving something, whether it's wealth or opportunity, or how they see the rest of the world, how does that affect them and how you view them in terms of their characters? Is it a good or a bad thing? Or how does it make you feel about these two families when it comes to that idea
1: of entitlement? Well, I mean, I am not a fan of entitlement at all ever in any case. I think that we don't see a lot of it right away with the Kims, and that's the whole point. And what I was talking about, even in my one-word takeaway, that the first half of the film is allowing you as a viewer to come along for the ride, and it almost treats them as anti-heroes of sort, where we know that they're doing something that is wrong in the sense they're lying, they're taking advantage of people but it's so much fun to see happen. And the parks are entitled enough that it becomes kind of a little bit of a, I don't know why I can't come to the word, the vicariously we're like living vicariously through these characters, like thinking like, Oh, Hey, we're taking down the man. Right. Um, And then ultimately you get those tinges of feelings of kind of like, cringiness like oh well I, you know, what, what about driver Yoon you know like yeah now that guy's out of a job but you know it's okay because this family needs this so we're right there with them and I think that's because we see all of this entitlement from the parks we get to see how they treat everybody and you know they're not really rude in the beginning of the film but there's just this sense of being able to buy anything you want, whether it's a tutor or not, um, it's, oh, well, we need a new driver. We'll we'll just wave our hands and we have another driver. We'll just wave our hands and now we have a new housekeeper. They always have what they need. And so when we're going through the point of view of a family that doesn't have what they need, it feels like the park's are maybe even more entitled than they necessarily are as characters is what I'm getting at. It's not until the second half, I think where the Kim's really start to show some of that entitlement themselves when now there's that other family that they have to deal with. And we start to see this whole thing play out of a cycle where the rich push down on the poor and then the poor, ultimately become the rich that then push down on somebody else. It's this idea that there's always somebody above you and always somebody below you in class. And so when you're only confronted with the person above you, i.e. the Parks and the Kims, then you come off as the one that is lacking and the Parks come off as the ones that are entitled. But in so many ways you could see the family in the basement I guess is what we'll call them the housekeeper and her husband viewing the Kim's as entitled ultimately at one point in the film where you could also flip that on the on its side and see the housekeeper as entitled. Once you know her whole story, because she's actually been doing the same exact thing. Um, and I think that what it allows us to do is that self-reflection. It allows us to think about how we see ourselves in relation to other people in our lives around us. Or at least that's what it did for me. It made me start to look at my life and be like, okay, well, who is my park? And who is my basement guy, right? Like who's above me and who's below me? Who is it that I feel like they're entitled that I really want to be like? And who is it that may look at me and think that about me?
0: Absolutely. And I think that that's a universal mentality. As you said, there's always going to be someone that, is making more money than me and there's always going to be somebody that's making less. And I face that as a leader of people because at least once every couple of months, I'm having financial conversations with some of my direct reports about pay increases and raises and trying to justify what I should offer to them and what I should recommend for them. And then on the other end of that, I'm looking at guys in the office next door who are making twice as much as me. And I think to myself, okay, should I be making that since they're managers too? And so these, these ideas come through our heads all the time. And I think it comes from a sense of deserving, but also a false sense of, of wanting or, or a true sense of wanting, but a false sense of deserving. Because when you look at all three of these families, by the end of the film, I didn't get a sense that anything felt earned. Like there was nothing that we were given by the parks that showed that they had earned their wealth. Now I know that they did, but, but Mrs. Park, she was just a homebody. I mean, she went to the grocery store with the driver. Um, there, there were very few things that we saw her do in terms of she couldn't cook. Um, couldn't Mr. clean. He didn't even clean. want her yeah. to. He like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So And there's that great conversation in the car where Mr. Kim says, well, do you love her? And he goes, oh, of course I do. I mean, I guess I have to. And it's really it's – He a very- says
1: – I love that scene. He says, my wife has no talent for housework. She's bad at cleaning and cooking too. And then Mr. Kim asks him, "You know, do you love her? He says, yes, I love her. And he pauses and he says, we'll call it love. And I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, that is such – A freaking telling way to say that those words
0: yeah so here's what i here's what i start envisioning is that you see the parks as on paper being the family that should be the cleavers of south korea they're a a well-to-do family they should be healthy and love each other when in fact they are all kinds of messed up i mean you've got a daughter who will basically fall in love with any tutor. And what in the world are you letting a boy up in her room by herself? That's not what I would ever do. Um, Aaron, I'm pretty sure you would not be in that you would not want that to be happening.
1: No, part Uh, of that's cultural though. And sure. you have to keep in mind like age wise, it feels kind of gross because he's talking about like, well, when she gets to, when she graduates, I'll date her. And, And and when he says that, I remember cringing and being like, Oh, dude, come on. But culturally, (laughs) it's not nearly as frowned upon. I mean, their age of consent is like way low compared to ours for sexually. So like there's just a difference in like perceived
0: maturity. Sure. And so I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like by the end of the movie, we see the parks as as mechanical. We see them going through the motions as a family. We have only one scene in particular where there is intimacy between Mr. and Mrs. Park, and it's not even like love it's lust so there's very much a less genuineness to their to their family dynamic compared to the kims and so in a lot of ways i feel like we latch on to the kims because we see that mechanic we see that kind of coldness even the house that they they work in is very cold lots of concrete lots of stone uh, lots of edge, you know, there's nothing that's very smooth. Everything is, feel, everything feels clean. It's very beautiful, but it's almost like when you're uh describing Cameron Fry's house from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I know this is a weird analogy, but it's like, it's very cold, it's very dark and you're not allowed to touch anything. That's how I feel. I feel walking into a park house. Like if I touch something or if I do something wrong, I'm probably going to get scolded or, be kicked out of the house because nothing is out of place. And it's only when the Kim's get there and they ultimately get to the, uh, what I call the drunk sleepover and we start seeing what you and I or others might experience. Like, Hey, we're getting our chance to ransack the place to have our run of the place. We'll do what we want. And what that showed me along with the relationships that we see early on is that the Kim's family dynamic feels a lot more genuine. It's, it's kind of dirty, it's a little ugly, but it's very honest. I mean, these guys genuinely care for each other. Otherwise, they wouldn't manipulate and try to get the entire family ingratiated into the world of the parks.
1: It, it makes me kind of wonder, too. So, obviously, every family with wealth is not going to have a poor family dynamic, right? Right. And so how do we view the family with wealth differently that is loving and caring and, you know, a, spending all of their weekends together, but they just happen to be rich. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't think that I think we almost are, are drawn into a sense of somewhat being too hard on the parks at times. Yes, we get these moments of the smell that is such a big deal that is so triggering. And I think for anyone that's ever felt that way from someone else that you believe is entitled or has this wealth or this stuff, this life that you want and that they are looking down on you, that can get you a certain way of feeling. But outside of that, you know, we do see them. They're very selfish, but they, they do seem to care about their, their family. She's intentionally ensuring that, there is there are tutors in the house she wants her kids tutored and trained they are trying to make this great birthday for their son even that funny scene that i texted you about with the dad and the son like he's genuinely playing with his kid you know you know da 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 uber you know when he says on the radio and they're using the walkie talkies and he's out in the tent And then they want to they want to have this big party for him. So there is a sense of like actually caring about their family. It just does not manifest itself in the way that we view a loving family. And so then we are put in a place where it's easier to judge them.
0: Yeah. And that that I guess that prejudice against the upper class may be blinding my vantage point a little bit because I can't deny those moments. I can't deny the fact that there are moments of genuineness, but the fact is I feel like be, because they're when you, I guess for me, when you have a woman like Mrs. Park who is home all day, who doesn't necessarily take care of things, gosh, I'm going to sound like such an old fifties guy. Yeah. It's coming. I'm,
1: I'm waiting. I can hear it coming.
0: <laughs> I, I think that it bothers me a little bit because it doesn't feel like she's contributing to the family that she, while she is, I guess, taking care of things, she's almost like paying for and handing off those responsibilities as a mom and as a parent to someone who is more qualified. I'm not going to deny that there are more qualified people to deal with mental health than myself. But at the end of the day, I would like conversations to start with my son and myself when he's dealing with personal issues before saying, you know what? Let's just find somebody else. We can afford blah, 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 blah. And again, we're talking about a two-hour narrative, maybe a third of which we get to peek into the world of the parks. And there may be some unintentionality that that Bong Ho is doing here for my purposes in terms of projecting that kind of lifestyle. I just didn't see enough of a family dynamic And I don't necessarily think it was because they were rich, but I think it was influenced by that. I think that money allowed more of a separation as opposed to more of an inclusion.
1: Well, oh, I know, but I think that's that's the brilliance of the film, and what that's part how this movie is so layered. I think that's a great example of it because when you really step back and you evaluate why you are thinking what you're thinking, and it's you know much like. The learning that we've both been doing uh, um, around race and social justice in the last couple years, but when you like sit back and you start evaluating why you think a thing, it can be very different. And so we are evaluating them from a place of being in the middle class and judging them based on what your perception of a loving family dynamic is and what you would do if you theoretically you think you would do if you had the money you would still act a certain way we don't know that because we don't have the money and so it's that's what is i think so incredible about parasite is it it does play with our own thoughts and feelings and it's not i'm not by any means judging you for your for that thought i don't think that's the point at all that's not what Bong Joon-ho wants he wants us to think about it right he wants us to consider it and it's fascinating to me because I'm the same way as you I mean like ultimately I want to believe like I wouldn't want to do that but then part of me says well wouldn't I wouldn't I want like my wife to never have to work or do anything wouldn't that be my ultimate like goal that would be great if I if she didn't have to do anything you know and we could have paid you know, t- expert tutors for our kids to, to train them and give them the best knowledge possible and have a housekeeper to make us the best meals and keep my house clean. So on one hand, yes, I can see it as very lazy and not being an engaged part of the family. On the other hand, I can see it as, in a way, because I have the money, I'm trying to use it to provide what I feel is the best means for my family.
0: So that brings up an interesting thought about the Kims and the parks, I think it really comes down to the idea of what you value. And for the Kims, they see, hey, look, if we can get into this job, if we can get into the world of the parks, we're going to be completely satisfied. But of course, that completely backfires on them because that's not what what happens. And the parks, I think, are the same way. They see a value system in saying, look, if money can take care of this, Let's let it, as you mean. When I look at that house, I think it's very beautiful, but it's also very cold. That thing could host a ton of people. And at one point, it does with the garden party, a a number of their friends. And so I think you're right. When it comes to how a family works, whether it's influenced by money or a place that they're living, that value system will be influenced by those things. And so I can imagine that in a lot of ways, if we're talking about different cultures, money and location and social status are all intertwined in terms of their influence on one another. So I could probably see the parks looking at being able to take care of their children with financial means that they would never have to worry about anything as a good thing. One of the things I'm, I'm intrigued by is what we don't know about these two families, their backstory, where do they come from? it could be that Mr. Park came from really bad means and that he made a name for himself doing whatever it was. We get a very small hint of his job. And then we, we see him taking care of his family because he'll, heck, he comes home one night with all this electronic equipment, like he ransacked to Best Buy. And it's just like, for us, that would be like Christmas morning times three. But for him, it's Thursday night, you know, I just, I was out and I thought I'd get this stuff. And so on the surface, we're like, well, that's not cool. I mean, we could never do that, but for him, maybe you're right. Maybe it is a way for him to say, this is going to make my family happy. And so as people, we can't judge those who make those choices to serve their family in that way. You're probably right. If I had a million dollars, if I'd won the lottery, the first thing I'm probably going to do is pay off our house. But the second thing I'm probably going to do is think about buying a bigger house. Why? Because I can afford it. And so there's this, there's this weird thing that happens where as a middle-class person, we look above and below and we adjust our worldviews accordingly because we think, well, at least I'm not like that person. And we look above and we say, man, I wish I was like that person. Well, those are crappy mentalities to have because then what it does is it takes away the satisfaction of where we are as people. And I think that's something that Ho does in this narrative is he challenges each of these families with where they are at based on the connection that they have with each other. There's this really intertwining idea that he's doing with what happens when a rich person and a poor person interact with each other. And he almost questions, should that be separated or should they continue to interact? But I think one of the bigger things that he does is how he manipulates through this narrative, how he manipulates through the Kims, how he manipulates us as an audience. And one of the big questions I had was how he what he sees as justification for the acts that the the Kims do in that first half of the film. And I was wondering if you were able to get an understanding of that. Did you see any justification for what they did? Did you feel Justified in the acts that they were doing?
1: Well, okay. Well, first, first to, I'm not gonna, I don't think we should presume at all what he, I don't think Bong Joon Ho is trying to make us feel anything. Okay. I think, and I, I don't think you, you meant that either. I just want to be clear on that. Like it's, it's, he's just presenting a story that elicits all kinds of different feelings from us. He's not, he's okay. not got something in mind that he is trying to get at. Like he's not, he doesn't have a justification in mind is what I'm saying. Okay. Gotcha. Um, So, yes and no. So the first time I watched it, ever, I immediately found myself feeling sorry for the Kims because of how they're presented to us. We start off by seeing them not able to use the Wi-Fi. It's been turned off because they can't afford it. And so they're leeching off of other people, go figure, in a basement, and... I feel like I feel sorry for them. They live in a basement that is under, you know, half underground, this thing. And and there's a guy peeing in the street outside and they can't get any wifi. And they're trying to make do by putting pizza boxes together and they're struggling. And what's the big deal? Honestly, like who, no one's going to get hurt. Like that's how you feel through it up until the point where driver, Yoon gets fired to when Jessica does what she does to him, I actually, for the most part, have no problem with what is happening on the first watch. Once she comes in and does what she does to him by leaving her panties in the back of the car is when I started to lose my sense of any kind of justifying what they were doing. Because at that point I saw people being hurt. I saw people being harmed. And from there We get the housekeeper pushed out and, of course, great moment, but and and fairly hilarious, but done so in a way that is you you really you deep down, you know, that there's no there's no justification for that. Like that person did not deserve what was done to them. And so I stopped feeling at that point on future watches, though. I pick up on so much more nuance that it was a lot harder to ever feel any sort of justification for them first of all the mom is never satisfied ever like from the very beginning of the film she is frustrated about everything she is talking back to the lady at the box truck and she even yells at her and she says you can't even afford a box folder like she's talking down to the person because they're using Her family to make boxes and then when the kid brings over the rock and gives it to him she mumbles under her breath food would be better she's never satisfied and it's interesting because those little details kind of come back later on right there's another great moment in the opening where mr kim who for the most part in the film you can almost feel like is the most flawless in so many ways There's this great shot that I pick up on where he flicks a stink bug off the table. And the imagery is so brilliant because of the fact that we have this whole thread running on later in the film of him essentially being the stink bug for the parks. So once we start to see them and the way that they treat people, the way that they run out and make fun of and mess with the guy who's drunk and peeing in the street like right off the bat Patrick they're not that great of a family like they're treating people poorly and they clearly they may have fallen on hard times but they are not at any point in this movie upstanding people that I 100% can feel sorry for so um it did take me a couple viewings but Once I started seeing it multiple times, I really can't find any justification for what they're doing at all.
0: I agree. And I think that there's a, I mentioned earlier that there's this really interesting dynamic with how each of the family members deals with that sense of entitlement. I think there's a level of manipulation that is very present between each one of them. As you mentioned, Mrs. Kim will do anything to get her way. But I want to rephrase that intentionally by saying she will have anything done for her to get her way because her daughter is probably the most mischievous of all the Kims in terms of being aggressive, being strategic. From the beginning, we see her nonchalantly making a certificate, a a diploma, I think.
1: Yeah, she's forging the papers that he needs to prove. Right.
0: And so when you look at when you look at the two women, you see a lot of clear manipulation, either silently, like passive aggressiveness with her or even just aggressiveness with with Mama Kim. But with the daughter, she's almost like the executor. So it's Mm -hmm. I almost picture Mrs. Kim giving her ideas and she's like, all right, I got this on the opposite end of that. Now you have the father and son. And as you mentioned, Mr. Kim almost feels flawless at very at the very beginning, and I feel like the jobs that he has, everything that he is doing, for the most part, he is doing for the well being of his family. Like he genuinely wants, he doesn't want prestige, he doesn't want fame, he just wants to make sure that his family is taken care of. And his son, his son, I think I think is probably the most of the four is probably the most pure in a sense. Because the fact is, when, as you mentioned, when we start the movie and we get to that conversation where he and his buddy are talking and his buddy offers him the job, he questions it. He says, I could never do that. I'm not even in college. And the guy validates his well-being by saying, no, you're a smart guy. So what if you're not in college? Just forge a diploma and act like you are and you'll get yourself in. So While his credentials on paper, which by the way are invalidated by Mrs. Park, she basically says, "I don't really care about paperwork. I really just want to see you in action." Well, everything that he's doing upstairs in that first lesson, there's nothing about it that's disingenuous. It's all, I believe, in my, you know, from my perspective, what he's doing is what he would do with any tutor. And so, even when he's leaving to go to the interview, he in his own way, tells his dad, he says, look, I'm just getting, you know, I'm going to get this diploma. I just printed it out early. And yes, while that's justification and it's his way of kind of making excuses, I feel like of the four, he's doing the least amount of manipulation. But see, listening to myself talk, I'm like, oh my gosh, I am justifying lying. I am justifying being deceptive. But that's the way we are Aaron, right? It's the way in which we look at the world and say, you know what? I'm not as bad as that guy. I didn't murder that guy. All I did was steal a pencil. When the fact is, or I was going five over. I mean, you can go five over on the speed limit, right? I mean, that's the rule. As long as you're not going 10 over, you're not going to get pulled over. What? Are you kidding me? The speed limit says 55. Go 55. If you're going 56 or over, you are breaking the law. And it's so interesting to me to look at these four individuals and see how they handle deception and manipulation and the ability to be dishonest. For some, it comes very easy, and it's motivated by the fact that they feel like they deserve more than they have. For others, it feels like it's altruistic. I'm doing this because my family needs it. And for even more, like the son, it seems like the only way out. This is an opportunity. And look what could come from it. In fact, at the very end, when we get the really great narrative by the son, the way he says what he says, I'm going to make money. Of course I'll get married. Of course I'll have children, but I'm going to make money. I mean, there's a sense of determination that's in him. And I think that determination was there at the very beginning. He just didn't have the opportunity. And so it's really beautiful to see how – Mung Ho puts all this together and allows us to, with the sympathy that we have for the, for the Kims, how he kind of expands on that. And he says, you know, they're all kind of flawed. And you know what? You're probably not perfect yourself. In some ways, I could attach myself to any one of these characters at any point and say, yep, I've been Mr. Kim. Yep. I've been Mrs. Kim. Oh yeah. I've been the daughter. And it's very convicting. And, and I think that whatever he was saying in the narrative, I think it said a lot more to his audience, which makes this movie, uh, really powerful. The biggest thing that comes from this is this visualization of the relationship between the classes. When I first saw this, I remember you and I were talking and you said, great social commentary about classes. And I thought, okay, And I was wondering, do I need to go to the internet to read about this first? And I said, no, I'm going to watch this. But it's very clear and very apparent that you have a division of classes. He depicts them very clearly through the characters, as we've talked about. But what I think is really interesting, Aaron, is that there are similarities as well as obvious differences. So there's a separation that comes from wealth and from having wealth and not having wealth. But there is a drive that exists in each one of these families that is kind of similar. They all want to get to the next level. They all want to make sure that they have the things that they need and want. They all want to make sure that they're comfortable. And in some ways, I feel like the Kim's pursuit is a little bit more say genuine than the parks. And it may be because I can relate more to the Kim's journey than the parks manipulation notwithstanding. (laughs) And so I wondered if you saw any of these character traits in these two families cross over as being like, Oh yeah, these guys are the same in this regard, but they're completely different in this way.
1: Well, I mean, obviously most of all is the fact that they just, they always are going to look down on somebody that is beneath them. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Like I said earlier, there is always someone below you that you are going to treat as lesser than you. And typically, you're not going to see that yourself is doing that or acknowledge it. So the Kims wouldn't acknowledge how they treat the housekeeper and her husband, but they would gladly murder someone over treating them that way and ultimately think about that I mean the end result of this is Mr. Kim who is maybe the most sympathetic character I know you said Kevin may be the most flaw less flawed but justifiable I guess but we really sympathize a lot with Mr. Kim and he ends up murdering Mr. Park for what for being a bigot or just being a jerk and treating him poorly i mean doesn't really treat him that poorly he acts rudely to him you know he talks about his smell behind his back he has these issues but like when you really look like it, it is what mr park did to mr kim worthy of being murdered that's kind of wild you know to think about that you would go to 11 At that point, I know he's traumatized. His daughter's been stabbed and all of these things are happening, but is that Mr. Park's fault? Right. And yet we want to go and we want, we want to blame the rich for all of the mistakes. I think that is what is kind of being felt here at the end of the film. So I think that that's a trait that they share in that the rich are going to blame the poor. The poor are going to blame the rich, but we're always going to blame somebody that's not us. We're not going to blame ourselves for our plight or our specific circumstances. It's going to be the other that is helping to cause whatever it is that we don't like about our situation.
0: Yeah, there is a blame game that happens. You always have someone to blame. And there's a great quote from an article that I read that talks about the class system and how... I think what we get from this film is that classes suck classes absolutely suck because of the fact that they intentionally or unintentionally define people by either proximity by social status, by bank accounts. And the, the quote reads while the Korean class systems and justices may stem from its distancing effect. The rich and the poor, its most profound harms result from proximity, from the intense relationships of interdependence forged between the rich and the poor under capitalism. The entanglement of the Kims and parks stems from this paradox. The efforts of the rich to isolate themselves from the rest of society only bring them nearer to those whose life circumstances they wish to escape. The Parasite is mainly about Interclass conflict, its most brutal scenes depict fights between members of the working poor. So now you have two different things happening. This quote, I think, clearly identifies something that's happening in the film. And it's asking a question. Can the rich live without the poor? In this depiction, the parks clearly cannot be sustainable without having help from people that make less than them. Clearly, you need to pay people to take care of your family. And I'm I'm being overly simplistic about that. Clearly, you need somebody who doesn't make as much money as you to come in and clean your house and cook and do all the things that you can't do. Clearly, you need someone who isn't who is more qualified to be a art therapist to your son, because you can't. And I think in a lot of ways, there is this idea that because there is this dependence on another class to make you feel better or superior, it creates more of that distance. The, I don't know if the, the question is answered. What's the, you know, what's the solution? I think it acknowledges the fact that there are classes out there that exist in every culture and those classes tend to encourage each other more than discourage each other. That The idea of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, I wish I knew what the answer was. I wish I knew, okay, well, do do we just go completely socialist and like everybody makes $40,000 a year? (laughs) I don't think we get to that point because that will cause even more issues. But I think it asks a good question in that do the different classes really need each other to thrive? And what does that thriving look like? Is that thriving really meant to be at the expense of others or is it really improving the quality of life and i think that this story plays out as if it doesn't as if the more you ingratiate yourself and accept the fact that there are different classes and that you want to live a certain way the more it causes division so there's like this the closer you get the more divisive divisive it it, it the more you live in it the more divisive it becomes. And there's a fantastic symbol that I, I picked up this time around, and it's with the, um, with the meal that's planned after the camping trip. It is, a, it is a Korean meal. It's a cheap Korean meal of basically ramen noodles mixed in with different, um, different sauces and whatnot. But what's interesting about that, it's like a $2 meal. What's interesting is that the parks say, go ahead and add sirloin to it. Now, I needed the internet to help to, to see this, but this symbol was really kind of the epitome of what the class system looked like, where you had to actually have both to make something work. You had this cheap bowl of noodles that was enhanced by a expensive meat. or right? It didn't need it, but the fact is this... Meal that Mrs. Park was consuming came at the expense of both rich and poor ingredients. And I think for my money, that really epitomized what I think the South Korean culture looks like in that when it comes to consuming the things of your culture, you have a rich culture and a poor culture, and they're not separate from each other. They're actually intertwined. We just don't necessarily like to see that.
1: Yeah. I mean, interesting. The title, of course, I think is one of the first examples of that, because your gut is to take the word parasite and say, well, we're obviously talking about the Kims because they are leeching off of the parks. But as you pointed out, essentially the parks are leeching off of the chems as well. So the parasite is really both. And and neither at at any given time. And it's really intriguing to see how he presents the system or the, I guess, the act of trying to get out of your specific class and specifically for the poor to rise up because this phrase, eat the rich, is thrown around a lot. Uh, it came up when Joker came out last year as well. But what we have is you have ultimately a poor family that rises up and kills the rich family metaphorically but even after they do that the poor family family is still trapped in slavery in the basement of the rich family's house even though the rich family is gone right and so what we end up having is this cycle where the rich people on top have changed but the poor people in the basement have also changed. But there's still poor people in the basement. Even after the murders, even after all of the craziness and people's lives being completely ruined or lost, we still have somebody at the bottom pining for the top, even though it's not any longer what we started out with (laughs) at the people at the bottom pining for the top. And so the only plan we're left with is that great awesome speech by the son who what's his plan i'm gonna make a whole bunch of money and go buy the house so then what then you're now on the top and then somebody else comes to be on the bottom so it it presents this cycle that i find incredibly interesting to look at because there isn't really a way to just Put your finger out and go, this is how you stop it. <laughs> and that's the point, right? It wouldn't be interesting if you could just be like, well, it's solved all the way if you just do X, Y, Z. The reason this is an issue in South Korea, the reason this is an issue in the world is because it's not easily solvable, is that class is a thing. And we have created that and it is a matter of control and policy keeps it in place and this is it playing out. And I, and I do too. I love the symbolism. Like you said, the stairs, um, I like the stairs and the use of the stairs in the house going up, going down. Um, I like that the Kim's house or I guess wherever they live is essentially a middle ground between an above ground home and a basement, which kind of signifies it's almost like, you know, you're looking at it at the beginning of the film after you've seen it once and you realize, well, they're, uh, he's telling us right away. They're in the middle. They're not really at the bottom. There is actually someone in a basement that lives lower than they live, but they don't see that. They just see themselves as
0: the basement. They're quite literally the middle class in this narrative. In a lot of ways they are symbols too, which we can't deny that the, the escape in the rain, I think, is one of uh one of the best ones in the film because you see this slow traveling back to their home, going down stairs after stairs after stair after stair. I mean, it's it's like a three or four minute sequence with no talking. It's just these wide shots that are beautifully shot of them going down these intricate staircases that really remind us of the fact that symbolically they were living at the top albeit not legally or not officially and now they're having to go back down to the bottom and what do they get when they go back down to the bottom a flooded house which is different than the house that the parks live in which is on top of a hill away from the rain the rain is another great symbol in the fact that the way the parks and kims view the rain is either a blessing or a curse. There's this fantastic line the next day when Mrs. Park is getting things ready for the garden party. And she's talking to her friend on the phone and she says, oh, I'm so grateful for the rain. We have clear skies and the pollution's gone. And you see this reaction from Mr. Kim. It's not even a reaction. You just, in the foreground, you see Mr. Kim and you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, my house has been destroyed because of this rain that you supposedly love at no point do we ever see the the parks getting wet. They stay dry. Even their son is protected by his teepee out in the pouring rain. So there's that symbol that the rain can be something that's beneficial and you can be protected from it because you can afford it. But even like with the poor for like the Kim's, you can't get away from it even though you live Almost below ground. Nope. The water's coming and it's sewage. It's not just rainwater. They mentioned that it's sewage and these guys are swimming in it at one point. Oh, I love this image and how disgusting it is. But the Kim's daughter is casually sitting on a toilet that is spewing sewage. It's disgusting. And she's scrolling on her phone. I know. Because that's the only place that they can get a Wi-Fi connection. It's beautiful imagery. I say beautiful. It's disgusting imagery, but it's beautiful yeah, for the for the motif. But even the rock, you know, that rock shows up the entire movie. It's carried around by uh, the Kim's son, and eventually, you know, it's supposedly going to be used as a weapon. But eventually, he puts it back. And I was reading online about what that symbol might mean. And somebody pointed out that in some ways. When the rock is put back in the river where it came from, the rock is symbolic of the poor, those that can't move, those that can't get out of their current situation. And the river represents the rich. And so while the rich continue to move by and move along and continue to kind of live their life, the poor are just kind of stuck. And they kind of hold on to the moments when the water passes by and get those instant satisfactions of just fleeting moments where they feel satisfied. And I feel like for the Kims, that's what this movie was about. They were a rock in a river that for the course of what, several months, they were living that life. They were appreciating that, but in the end they were still poor. And I think what Joon Ho does more than anything else is he really kind of nails that at the very end when we hear this great fairy tale of the Kim's son, who's going to buy the property and his dad will be able to walk out. But then we're told, Nope, that's not what's going to happen. Eventually I'll do that. And so what we think actually happens is really just a dream in the mind of a, of a boy, of a, of a young man. And well, so
1: I think, I think so. Wait, hold on a second. Cause you go back to the rock because what okay. you're, what you're saying about this rock is to me, it's really, I think that's, I think that's looking for something that may not be there. Maybe he actually specifically is narrating during the sequence of the rock. And he says, dad, today I made a plan, a fundamental plan. And he's putting the rock into the creek. And he is to me, he is very clearly calling back to the great conversation, almost my connecting point that he has with his dad. Right. And I'll actually read it. Cause I love this moment so much. They're laying there in the freaking shelter after all of the crap has gone down, right? And he says, his dad's talking to him. And he says, Kaiwu, you know what kind of plan never fails when you have no plan. You know why? If you make a plan, it never turns out like you want. You think all these people wanted to be sleeping on the floor with us in the shelter? You think uh that's why you don't make a plan. Without a plan, nothing can go wrong. If something spins out of control, it doesn't matter. And if you kill someone or betray your country... It doesn't effing matter, which is also like some foreshadowing there. And he says, dad, I'm sorry for all of it. I'll take care of it. He starts taking responsibility because he's the one that started this whole thing, like you pointed out earlier. And the whole time he's hugging the stone, right? And his dad calls it out. He's like, why are you hugging that rock or whatever? And he says, it keeps clinging to me. I'm serious. It follows me. And when he puts it in the river, and says specifically, dad, today I made a plan, a fundamental plan. I think he is rejecting that idea of relying on the rock, relying on chaos and randomness. And, and because that's what he's been doing. The, the rock has symbolized prosperity and wealth and it's going to bring you luck and all of these things that it clearly does the opposite of in, <laughs> for them in so many ways. And instead he's saying, it's not a rock that's going to solve my, my problems. It's getting a job, earning the money to buy the house and then moving in with my mom. Like it's on the, on its head is exactly what we would think is the right choice to make, right? That's the responsible thing to do. Uh, But for me, I really do think that the bearing of the bearing of the rock is a symbolic of him saying, I disagree with you. I am going to make a plan and it is going to be a very thorough and smart plan. it is, I'm going to do it the right way and I'm not going to rely on luck or mysticism or lies and scams. I'm going to put that behind me and I'm going to go forth and I'm going to get you out of this situation and pull our whole family out of it instead of the way that I did it in the very beginning of the movie by trying to get it fast. I'm going to get it slow but I'm going to get it
0: for good. So this is what I love about this movie because I have a completely different interpretation. That's great. (laughs) And I would have completely agreed with you had the end of the movie ended with that dream state and not kicked back to the sun pinning that letter because rather than leaving us in that dream state, Bong says, "Er," and he returns us back to that apartment where the son hasn't executed the vision he hasn't done the plan and almost as if he's recalling his dad's earlier advice that the only way to fulfill a plan is to not make one at all and so what we're left with is this moment where maybe he doesn't make that plan and maybe mr kim remains underground so it's this weird thing because the rock itself he clung to it the whole time and yes i could see that interpretation But I see him putting it in the river as being a way to sort of settle for the fact that things won't ever change. And I think that it's great to be able to see both because of the fact that we either leave the film feeling pessimistic or we leave it feeling somewhat hopeful. And to me, I think that's what makes narratives really great is the fact that we're wrestling with that because of our experience walking through the the movie itself we pick up on those different things so if the rock represents prosperity what you saw as a quick cash a quick rich a get get rich quick solution i saw it as him valuing it and eventually just giving it up because he knew that it ultimately didn't give him what he wanted and that he wasn't going to be able to do anything about it that he was just going to stay in that moment and let the world essentially pass him by much like the river does over the rock and maybe occasionally get those kinds of, you know, glimpses of, of happiness here and there.
1: Well, I agree. I agree that it's, it's not like a straightforward ending either. And I totally understand what you're saying because he is making a plan and we see it play out like a futuristic version in his head of what that plan is going to look like. But he's, we only, we end the movie with him just making the plan. So we don't know how it plays out. It very well could just do exactly what his dad said and get him nowhere because making a plan doesn't work. Right. But we don't know that we don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's just a matter of this is what he is setting his mind to in that moment.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And I think that leads to questioning if there is any redemption for any of these characters and it's hard to say we know that mr park was killed uh if not when he's stabbed then ultimately by the uh by the magazine article that that mr kim is reading and saying he's so sorry he's so sorry um but it honestly aaron it was difficult for me to see if there was any redemption for for anyone and i i think that's okay I think we're kind of left with this messy situation that isn't saying that all classes suck, even though that's kind of what I picked up on. But for me, I think it was less about wondering if anybody was redeemed and more about whether anyone changed as a result of it. And even that's kind of ambiguous based on what we just talked about. Um, I happily struggle with that. And um, I, I wonder if that was an, in, an intent that bong ho had was to leave the audience kind of wondering if anybody had a true happy ending.
1: Oh, I mean, I don't think there's any question. Like there's no, I don't think that's a questionable thing. I honestly don't think that this is a debatable question in the least. I mean, I know there is no one that is redeemed at the end of the film period. Like there's just not, there's no act of redemption that has a chance to take place, you know, Kevin survives, that's not an act of redemption, you know, he's given a new lease on life, that's grace, not redemption, he's, he has not done anything to absolve himself of his role in the horrors that took place, so I absolutely don't think anyone is redeemed of their decisions, Um and I don't necessarily think anyone has really changed all that much either i think they all still hold very similar positions to what they came out of this with you know i I mean he still wants to get to be the rich so that he can theoretically save his dad but it's it's still a point of like emphasis to become the other in this scenario for him like that's still the goal uh and and it's So, so I don't think that they're redeemed in their way of thinking either personally.
0: Yeah. I look at what Kevin ultimately wants to do. And I think to myself, could you not just break in? (laughs) Could you not just sneak in? Could you not ultimately just get into the house some way and rescue your dad? And I know that's a it's an obvious question to ask because I think there's something else behind that. It's exactly what you said. Ultimately, I think he wants money. I think he wants to be rich. He wants to feel like he can take care of his family and the rescuing of his dad, I think is a byproduct of that. But ultimately I think his motive really is to be rich. And I think it's reinforced by the fact that he says, sure, I'll have a family. I'll have a wife. I'll have an education, you know, things that you and I value, things that most people on paper would value. And he sees those as just kind of byproducts to getting a chance to, yes, rescue his dad, but ultimately buy that house. And I think it's, I think it's an interesting send off to, to his character and for his mom and ultimately to the story. Before we get into our connecting points, I really just wanted to hit on the, the story Itself, because we talked a lot about the symbols and the layers that exist. But I think that, independent of that, I can't, you know, objectively say this, but I think independent of all those things, it really works well as a a movie, as just a straight story. Like even if you didn't have all of these messages attached to it, there's intrigue, there's definitely entertainment, there's some education in, in here, and I think ultimately. Most people walk away from Parasite thinking that was a great experience. And I, it's difficult to do that because you can get overly preachy. I recently watched Zootopia for the first time. And I know it got a lot of pushback when it first came out because of the social commentary. I think it handled its stuff pretty well apart from a couple of places that it felt a little preachy from my, from my take. But I think when you have a story that you can enjoy at least on its first viewing for the events that take place, for all the espionage, all the tricks and turns that take place in in the story, when you can leave the movie experience feeling like you had a great time, I think that's a great movie experience right there, independent of all the other stuff that gets unpacked. I feel like it's like it's a, a present that you just open. You're like, oh, wait, there's more down here. Oh, there's more down here. And being able to pull out that first layer of entertainment, I think Bong Ho did a fantastic job.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's a clear reason why it is so beloved this year, so many people's best picture of the year, so many people clamoring for it to win award after award, and that there's a reason that when many, many international films have never had anywhere near this sort of popularity that this one has, it's because it does do both. It's not just entertaining. It's the class stuff, but in a way that is actually more than just both. It's entertaining and exquisitely made from all technical aspects and quality. And so when you put all of those things together with the acting and, and just every element of this film, even the score, I noticed the score on this last one, I hadn't really paid too much attention to it, but it's beautifully used. There's some like Great classical music used at perfect moments. Um, I mean, it, I just, I really stuck out to me that everything about this is exquisite. And yeah, it's fun to watch just as a story. If you don't want to get deep and find yourself reflecting on class and just watch it as a bunch of characters in a movie doing a thing you can do that and you can enjoy it just fine. Like, I think that's what you're getting at. Um And I, and, but yet you can also dig deeper into it and there's meat there and there's layers and that breeds enjoyment of rewatches even more so. So, I, I mean, it is, there's a, there's a reason, there's a reason that your movie doesn't succeed if it does one or the other, as well as it, the heights it can reach if it does both.
0: There's bonus. There's bonus in those layers and it's fantastic. Well, it's connecting point time, my friend, and I can go first if you want me to, which I will. Sure. All right. Okay. Well, I was looking back at our one more takeaways and I realized that your connecting point and my connecting point emphasize the opposite one more takeaways that we have (laughs) because the scene that stands out to me is the, what I call the dismantling of the housekeeper. To me, this is the high point of manipulation for the movie. This is the everybody is involved. Every Kim has a job, and it is both entertaining, educational, and completely disgusting at the same time. It starts out with a hint drop from the park daughter who is eating fruit during her tutoring sessions. She says, you know, I miss um, – I wish we had peaches in – Kevin says, why don't you have them? And she says, it's the forbidden fruit. And he asks why, and we find out that the housekeeper is deathly allergic to them. And so at this point, that message is given to the rest of the family, and then there is this whole scheme that goes through a complete breakdown of gathering peaches and shaving off the, the peach fuzz to then sprinkle on the housekeeper's neck so that she freaks out to get her to a hospital where she's on the phone where Mr. Kim unintentionally air quotes takes a picture of her as he's taking a selfie and then he reports it back to Mrs. Park how he overhears her talking about tuberculosis and here's where the icing on the cake Is for me. She's in the kitchen and it's all in slow motion, which I think can be overdone. But in the case of Parasite, it uses this. It uses slow motion perfectly. She is in the kitchen and she is uh, doing something at the table. And the Kim daughter sprinkles some more peach fuzz on her neck. She starts coughing. In comes. Mr. Kim and Mrs. Park from shopping and she's coughing into a napkin she turns 180 throws the napkin in the trash can there's a scene that's that uh, the scene cuts back to a a moment where the uh, Kim daughter says "Here if you can get this for bonus do that" and it's a salsa packet I'm like "What what's a hot sauce packet going to do?" And then we see him uh, Mr. Kim go to the trash can, squirt the hot sauce on the napkin. And then we see Mrs. Park's face as he shows her this bloody napkin from the trash can. Boom. Housekeeper discharged the whole family's in. And at that point I said, Oh my goodness. If I wronged this family, I would be in real trouble. And I think for me, when you talk about being manipulative, it was almost like a heist movie at that point. You had an entire team involvement. It wasn't just one person. Everybody had that role. And I think it's fantastic writing, but I also think it speaks to the fact that at this point, all four of the family members were in on being a part of the Kim chem- or the Park household and they would do whatever it took. It starts with collateral damage with the driver, ends with the, the housekeeper. And now they're in which sets up the great back half of the film that starts their ultimate demise at being part of that world in the way that they are. And that was my connecting point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's probably my favorite scene in the film. It's not my connecting point, but it is definitely the one that I enjoy the most. I think it, and I think it is one of the most brilliant transitional pieces in a movie I've ever seen to take a movie from a part one to a part two without doing some kind of like distinct break in tone. It just kind of naturally flows through that. I love that you call it a heist. Like you compared it to that. I think that is so perfect. And it's, and it's also the point where we didn't talk about this, but like, this is the point where Kevin becomes hundred percent culpable as well. He is in on it at this point. He is no longer not involved. I love a couple things about that. My favorite part of that scene is actually the dad who I had so much empathy for up until this point as well, but his involvement in it and him practicing that speech, like it made me think about how much effort they put into this scam and to everything they did, how much energy to getting themselves into the positions that they have. Like what would that energy look like if translated into work, into something else that wasn't a quick fix and then that made me think, well, is that even possible? Or would the systems just hold them back and get them nowhere anyway? So, you know, it is absolutely brilliant. Um, this is also, I was going to, didn't want to point it out, but this is where the classical score kicks in, that it really, really is memorable for me. Um, it's just, it's absolutely perfect. It's its a wonderful, wonderful, awesome scene. So I'm glad you picked it.
0: Well, what about you? What was yours?
1: Well, mine was the drunken conversation when the parks are gone. So the parks are gone and the Kims will play. And they do play. And, you know, we get the mom out in the yard shot putting. This is a great moment of, again, where we see how much the mom just doesn't seem to care about anybody else. The shot putt goes off. And you can hear real briefly in the distance, it hits it and crashes and breaks a window. And they think nothing of it. an alarm goes off, actually. But they have no regard for anyone other than themselves. Either, right? And it, it manifests itself in that night them sitting around the table in the living room they're drinking they're eating they're being generally slobs and and it's it's a great visualization of like what we think of as poor being messy kind of enveloping the clean nice area of the rich house but they're like spreading their messiness into it and they have this awesome talk And the mom says, again, she's always the trigger for this. She says, hell, if I had all this money, I'd be nice too, which stuck out to me because it was like, she has this belief that money solves it all. Like money is what determines your attitude. And of course, that's what gets them in trouble in the first place, because they believe that their attitude is related to their poorness, when in reality, your attitude is a choice and has nothing to do with your poorness, or it can have nothing to do with your poorness. Um, she, they, there's a great line in here, money is an iron, it smooths out all the creases. That is actually something that I think is really a great visual image that is true in so many cases. It works in all aspects of our lives, whether you're poor, middle class, or whatever, the more money you have, it does feel like it's an iron, and it makes things just go easier. There's a line of dialogue in here where somebody wonders about Driver Yoon. says, Driver Yoon, he must be working somewhere now. Right? He's young. Nice physique. It's, it's them. They start trying to justify what they've done. There's like a very, very small tinge of guilt that you can see here. And Jessica interrupts them. Jessica, the schemer, the worst of the bunch, as you kind of pointed out in a lot of ways, focus on us. We're the ones that need help, right? Not Driver Yoon, but me. That was like really painful to listen to because you're like, my gosh, at this point, I can't root for you at all. Like I, in fact, my allegiance in many ways almost starts to change in that moment to where I kind of want to see the downfall because I'm like, I'm kind of tired of seeing you get away with this because you're so ungrateful for the situation that you lied your way into. And then there's great use of just, again, with Bong Joon-ho being such a, an expert filmmaker, Jessica is, is screaming and there's a, a matter of timing. This she She yells and lightning crashes at the same moment. Um, He just, he's so good about putting that stuff together. And then as we transition out of this into the moment where the family starts to come home, there is this time where they start to fantasize about if this was their house and what they would do and how they would treat it and whatever. And it just kept, it made me think, Patrick, it's like, it's never enough. And that's what this whole thing kind of bore out for me was that. No matter what amount of wealth you achieve that takes you up that next level status, that next class, you're always going to wonder what it could be like if more was yours. So they can't just be content in that they have this awesome opportunity to have this great night alone in the house while the the parks are gone and enjoy it. They're already in the midst of doing that enjoyment, trying to think about what more they could get out of the situation. Yeah. And that's the cycle. And that, and, it, and if you can never be happy with what you have, then it's going to be a real problem in life for you and for them and for anybody. Right.
0: Yeah. I think when it comes to entitlement, there is an addiction that's tied to that where you're never content. And because of, there's always going to be somebody above you and always someone that has more, whether it's wealth or stature or whatever. And you're right. That scene plays itself out with a big giant ew when you finish it, because even the way the set is depicted, it's just, it's a mess. Um, I personally got a little teed off when she kicks the dog. I'm like, no, don't you kick that dog? I thought it didn't do anything to you. Um, and that scene completely made me really disgusted with at least two of the four, but probably all four since they were all just enjoying that time together um but good that's a great connecting point great moment in the movie well before we finish up we got one final topic and that is of course the tv series that has been announced on hbo that uh, bong Ho is going to be spearheading it is is it called parasite it just it's a no there's
1: no details the 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 only thing i wanted to talk about i just wanted to know what you thought because when this when this first got announced that bong Ho was potentially going to partner with Adam McKay, which is like oh, what kind of pairing, like what in the world's going on there to make his movie into some sort of a series for HBO. So at this point it was just a pitch idea and that's still what it's kind of going on right now, but he has actually spoken some about what his ideas are. And he says that he has essentially six hours of movie worth of ideas on his iPad. Please don't lose that. Um, that he has backstory on all of these characters. He has moments and, and things that fill in the gaps of time. Gave an example in this article, um, this interview about the housekeeper when she comes back to the house in the rain and she's ringing the doorbell, by the way, probably one of the most amazing scenes in the film from just a perfect filmmaking standpoint is when all the music stops and we just hear the doorbell ringing over and over and over. It's absolutely freaking terrifying. Um, but she's sitting there at the door and she has bruises on her face and even her husband notices these bruises, but she never says anything about where they came from. So he said there's an entire backstory about what happened to her in the meantime when she got kicked out of the house in between then and her coming back. And there's backstory as to how she knew about the bunker in the first place when she worked for the previous owners of the house, the architect that designed it or whatever. So – he's got all of these little details that he believes is worthy of an actual six hour movie. And he said that that's how he originally wanted it to be, but he knew that that wasn't realistic. You can't put a six hour movie in cinema. And so he hopes that this will allow him to put the full vision with all of the information out there. So knowing that I'm curious, how do you feel about this?
0: I feel pretty good. As long as you get some of the original cast to return, because if we're talking about stuff that takes place, before the end of the movie obviously then i need to see more kims and i need to see more parks and i i want to see things that in all honesty aaron will enhance parasite as a film so if you're going to give me backstory if you're going to fill in the gaps i'd hope that those things weren't just filler that they were really going to add to the narrative that we get in parasite otherwise i could take it or leave it
1: so I am of the pretty much exact same mindset. For me, having the original actors is absolutely key because you're totally expanding on the exact same story. You're not telling a side story in a universe. You're not referencing those characters. It is about those characters. So yes, if he can get them back, I say I'm all for it. Um, because he already had this information in mind, I think I feel a little better about it than him trying to, feeling like he needs to create more in order to satisfy a demand. This was something that he pulled out in the first place. So it's more like him just put, it's more like a director's cut, only a really, 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 really long one. I love the world. I love the movie so much. Every time I watch it, I feel like I fall in love more with it. So I would like to learn some more about it for the most part. There is a tinge in me though Loves the mystery, man. And and says, it's okay that I don't know why she has random bruises on her face and that that question never gets answered. Because I don't have to know the details. I can use my imagination. And I think that that's a lost art sometimes in movies. And I think back to like Inception, right? And people have for years wanted to know whether or not that stinking top Spinning is ever gonna fall or not. And we just don't get to know. And there is something really special about that. And so I hope that whatever he does, and I have to trust him at this point. I have to say, like, he's earned the right to have me go in with expectations high and give him the benefit of the doubt. But that's my hope is that it does not undo and tell us every little detail that it still leaves some things that don't have all the gaps filled in because I enjoy that
0: uh, in a movie. I do too. Well, the January donor pick is in the books and hopefully you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We're not done yet though. If you are one of our faithful Patreon donors, you will see some good bonus content showing up in our feed right next to this episode. If you aren't, think about becoming one where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to vote each month's donor pick as well as listen to us ramble on about why we Love things like romantic comedies and movies that take place in high school, as well as expose ourselves to the world regarding our lack of movie trivia knowledge. Find out more at patreon.com slash Film. Finally, we will be continuing our tribute to director Makoto Shinkai next week as we cover his short feature, The Garden of Words. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you